Welcome to Fellow Fellow, a new podcast from Harvard Kennedy School's Technology and Public Purpose Project. I'm your host, Mark Lerner, and I'm a fellow at the Tech Project. In this podcast, I interview my fellow fellows about their research and perspectives on some of the most interesting challenges at the intersection of technology and society. All right, welcome to another episode of Fellow Fellow. Really, really excited to have Liz Sisson, who is an amazing uh, fellow fellow of mine who I've had the pleasure to get to know. Liz is the Chief Operating Officer of Urban Us, a venture group investing in startups that are improving life in cities and combating climate change. She was also at the Roosevelt Institute, where she managed programs that researched and implemented public policy initiatives in local communities across the country. She's worked on a wide variety of subjects, including economic development, transportation, climate change, and housing. And right now, she's working on helping venture capitalists care about public purpose. Liz, it is so great to have you here, and I'm really excited to chat. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Could we maybe start? I mean, there's so many questions already that I have, and you and I have talked a lot about your project just because I'm super fascinated by it all. And also I'm a dunce when it comes to venture capital, but I would love to just get a quick overview of what it is that you're working on here at the Belfer Center. Sure. So for this year, I am working on venture capital and public purpose. So basically helping VCs go through diligence and sort of post-investment in considering public purpose for those investments. So a lot of sort of impact investors or ESG investors are using existing frameworks to consider impact or ESG. But what I've discovered is that public purpose sort of a little bit more broad than a lot of the sort of ESG, which is environmental and social and governance frameworks, public purpose is a little bit more broad. And I want to focus on the sort of unintended consequences of the technology. So basically, what even if this technology succeeds or this company succeeds, what are the sort of externalities of the technology or the unintended consequences on society because of that technology? I always like to sort of give the example of Obviously, Facebook and what happened with democracy in 2016 and arguably 2020, you can look at Uber and what happened in California or really all over the country with sort of labor issues and thinking about those uh, major issues of public purpose. And for a lot of startups that would not have survived, they would have definitely collapsed if they had those major issues, but also the, the sort of problems to society that those startups and those technology have created. Gotcha. You mentioned ESG a couple of times and it was, what was it? Environmental, societal and governance. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Could you maybe explain a little bit about why that's, why those frameworks aren't enough? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times I'll ask folks that are working and investing, you know, that are maybe in those spaces, you know, do you think about ESG? Do you think about impact? Like, what do you think of, what is the difference between the two? And it's, it's always interesting to sort of hear how people respond to that question. You know, I mm-hmm. think impact a lot of times is thinking about what is the sort of intentional product or intentional company doing um, for their services or their product. So for instance, let's say there's a startup that is creating a technology that will help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And it's this intentional impact that this startup and this technology will make. ESG a lot of times is looking at sort of more of the internal or the operations of how a company is existing, right? So 
like let's say the E of ESG, um, their supply chain management, you know, how environmentally friendly is their supply chain? Or if they're looking at sort of the S of ESG, what are their hiring practices? You know, are they making sure that they have an equitable hiring process? And, you know, once someone is working there, what is their experience? So it's a lot of the sort of um, what I'm looking at is both of those things um, and not forcing people to choose between ESG or impact, but also sort of what are the other larger areas that are maybe not covered in impact frameworks or ESG frameworks. I see. So it's sort of like, it's not just how the company itself operates in terms of how it hires or where it gets its materials, but should the business model of this company exist, what impact will it have second order, third order out into the, into the world? Does that sound about right? That's right. And I think a lot of times people will, will pick, Uh, They'll either embrace an ESG uh, framework or they'll take, you know, they have an impact thesis, if you will. Uh, For instance, Urbanos, the fund that I've been working with for almost five years now, their their mission and their sort of impact is really looking at climate change and how cities uh, play a part with climate change both creating all the issues with climate, but also mitigating the issues with climate. And sort of that, you know, that is our big area of impact. And I wouldn't even call us necessarily impact investors, but, you know, for us, we're very much mission driven. So of course, every investment that Urban Us makes, we consider how is this really going to affect climate change? How is this really going to affect cities? But Sort of on the other side of that, you know, impact investors a lot of times will think about, are you creating jobs? How does this impact marginalized communities? Those areas aren't huge for Urban Us. Of course, we'll consider, you know, what are the labor practices or are we creating jobs or taking away jobs? But it's not core to our decision making. It's, It's part of maybe some part of diligence, but it's not, you know, if it's really helping mitigate climate change, then that's that's the number one most important thing. There are some investors that that care about everything related to impact. They'll measure a ton of different things. They'll report on a bunch of different things. Urbanos is not one of those funds that's reporting on a ton of impact numbers. Gotcha. You mentioned care about, you know, helping venture capitalists care about public purpose. And there are venture capitalists that care about this and report on it. And recognizing that there's a wide spectrum of venture capitalists out there that invest in companies. What is the thought process of VCs right now when it comes to caring about public purpose? How do investors think about this right now? Yeah, I mean, so I can give a little background as to sort of how I came to this work, which I think helps explain that. So prior to working in VC, I worked at the Roosevelt Institute and was really focused on public policy. Prior to that, I was doing consulting work on energy and transportation for uh, New York State. And, you know, I definitely approach things with a policy hat. I think about this exact process of if this thing gets put into place, what is going to happen as a result of it? What is something we haven't maybe thought about as a result of it? And a sort of these unintended consequences of, of policy in those cases. And then when I came over to VC, I realized that a lot of times people are really assessing sort of what is the core technology? What is this core technology going to do? But not doing that sort of unintended consequence if this thing succeeds or if this thing fails, what is going to be the result of it? And I, I realized that that's a policy hat, you know, like that is something that policymakers have to think about all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think VCs and, you know, in some cases, startup founders don't always have to think about those things. I one time asked a, a very famous investor if, 
you know, if the business model is inherently against public purpose, if it's actually destructive to society, how can you even begin to care about public purpose if the entire core business goes against that? And his response was, the regulators will figure it out. But I think a lot of times, if the regulators are playing in that field, for a lot of startups, that means their, their company won't make it. They can't get through that those regulatory burden. And also, that's just bad for society, because a lot of times, these massive startups, you know, the ones that have tons of soft bank money can sort of pay their way through. They can lobby and they can hire expensive lawyers. And so I really wanted to bring that sort of almost policymaking and sort of decision-making hat to VC. And I wanted to be able to sort of uh, create a framework or, or give a tool to VCs to, to easily consider those things, but not as a, an aside to their already existing due diligence or their care, uh, you know, what they care about. For instance, you know, growth or uh, the sort of long-term value to customers or churn or, you know, all of these like these sort of VC metrics that you really care about when you're investing in startups. What I'm saying is that these things are not separate, that really when you think about public purpose, it can also create value for customers. It can really create sort of a differentiator or a sort of competitive advantage and that it should be sort of a stuff. You should be assessing public purpose as much as you're assessing the sort of core things of the business, because those two things are not separate from each other. They're actually one in the same. Can you dive a little bit more into, into that piece? Yeah. So I would say that, you know, a lot of times when people are considering impact or ESG, they sort of look at it on the side. It's either, you know, for the investors that maybe it's not core to their their mission, they'll they'll look at the business itself. They'll look at sort of how big can this thing get? You know, who are they selling to? What are the risks that the, the product has right now? Um, what is the next sort of six months? What is the next 12 months? What does the next 18 months look like for growth? What is their reoccurring? Um, you know, their MRR, their monthly reoccurring revenue. And then they say, okay, and then let's look at impact on the side. Like what, what are they going to, what are the cool things that they're going to do to make society better? Or what are the things that they're putting into place for their supply chain management to make sure that they are not, you know, doing destructive things with their supply chain or what are their hiring practices? Are they making sure they're creating sort of an open and inclusive environment for their employees? What I'm saying is, those things should not be separate. You should be looking at like, what is the core to the business, right? Like what is the actual product and directly asking like, well, where are they sourcing these things? Right. Or if you are hiring talent, like who is the talent of the company? And then quickly saying like, okay, well, how did they hire those people? What is their plans to bring on more talent? Like what is the culture of the company? What kind of space are they creating? Mm -hmm. and, and, and really it's turning what is, typically thought of as risks into really opportunities. And it really allows VCs to dig into these potential areas of risk and what could come up with this startup. And I think it's really important for early stage companies where the littlest thing could really collapse a company and you have to be really careful. I really think that if you consider public purpose, it just, there really is that business case. Would it be fair to say that a lot of companies look at these types of issues more as sort of marketing opportunities? Like, oh, if we do this sort of thing, we can say that we do that sort of thing, as opposed to actual business opportunities? 
You know, I think that is very common. And I would say that's sort of the ethics washing um, PR stunt, you know, that happens. You see it in corporate America all the time. When you look at, when you look, when you go to an LGBTQ parade, you go to a pride parade and you see all these corporations that are there. And then you actually dig into the experience of their LGBTQ employees and you're like, wow, there is a disconnect here, you know? And yeah. I think that that happens all the time. That is not necessarily making the business case, right? What I'm saying is if we go earlier, if we go smaller and the startup really starts thinking about these things really early on, this is where you're sort of setting the foundation. You know, we always say at Urban Us that it's much easier to build a good culture or it's really, it's really easy to sort of care about public purpose early on than years down the road, then try to build a culture or down the road, try to rebuild public purpose. I think that's why it's really great to do this with early stage investors mostly and, and really early stage uh, founders and startups because you're really setting that foundation now. So it doesn't, so it's not just PR down the road. Right. So you're building it into the organization from when it begins, from its early investments. One of the things that you know strikes me is that the example you gave of, of Facebook and its effects on democracy, Facebook is an incredibly massive company, incredibly successful by all, by all of the standard business metrics, and by and large has not done a lot of the sort of framework thinking that you are talking about, or at least that's, that's the, you know, what we're going with right now. How do you talk to companies that look at Facebook as an example and say, like, why should I care about this when there is a massive company that has not cared about it and has done so well? I think that kind of goes back to my sort of spectrum of thinking that there are some folks that are sort of pure capitalists, like pure markets, the regulators will figure it out. And I'm, I, I, you know, I would love to change all of their minds and really mm-hmm. hammer into them that they should care about these things, but there's just some people that won't. But I think if you look at what Facebook went through, they, you know, they were lucky enough to have, and they have been lucky enough to have so much money and so much power to get through this. But I think that a lot of times, and I think most startup founders would recognize that they're called unicorns for a reason. Facebook has has the advantage of being so big, but most startups would not be able to survive that kind of situation. Uh, mm-hmm. They would not be able to make it through large issues, either PR or operational. You just couldn't survive. And so I think if you're just more intentional and strategic, I, I think that it will just help them in the long run so they don't have to deal with these things as they continue to grow. And of course, keeping in mind that Facebook, you know, it, it didn't set out to do what it did, right? There was never that sort of, again, that intentional mm-hmm. impact of getting involved in democracy. It was really supposed to connect people, build friendships, all of that, get Mark Zuckerberg some dates at Harvard. But over time, things evolve. And, and so that's why what I'm building is not just a, a due diligence tool. It's not something that investors and founders could use pre-investment, but actually over the lifetime of a company and mm-hmm. all the different life cycles that a company will go through and all the different things that you have to consider. You know, For instance, a really early stage hardware company is maybe not thinking about supply chain just yet. They're still trying to figure out what their product is. But at some point, maybe when they raise their series A or their, you know, their pre their seed plus, and they're, they really need to start thinking about how they're going to ship their product. That's when you need to start thinking about, well, what are the supply chain options that we really need to consider? Right. And could you maybe paint the picture of 
your vision for what these companies would actually be doing in in this realm that you that you have in your mind, right? Like you're creating this tool, which I guess one of the, part of this question is what is this tool potentially going to look like if you have that figured out right now? But what is what is the sort of end state that you're shooting for with this work? So I think um, it's probably good to understand what due diligence for a VC in a startup looks like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, after I'll just tell a little story. So, you know, when you're a VC and you've talked to a startup and you're really interested in what they're doing, you've had a series of conversations. You've probably gone through a thousand decks with them. You've they've met your you know the other partners or they've met your colleagues and you've met their colleagues and you're really sort of building that relationship, you go into diligence with them. And that's really like lifting up the hood and digging in. And every VC has their own way of doing diligence. It's part of the secret sauce, if you will. What are the things they're really looking for? How are they measuring all of the things? Like what metrics are they focusing on for the impact investors? It's sort of like, well, how are you assessing the impact that this company is, is saying that they will provide? And that is the area that I want to focus on. And, you know, because due diligence is the secret sauce, and I think a lot of folks keep those questions or the way that they assess companies sort of close close to the chest, I really want to just build a tool that can sort of add on to existing due diligence and say, mm-hmm. all of these VCs can sort of set their thresholds for these different areas of public purpose. For instance, Urban Us, who I'm with, you know, climate is huge for us. But again, like I said, labor is not that important. I would say both climate and labor are massive areas of public purpose that we should care about. But mm-hmm. we would sort of set our threshold for what we care about. And then we would we would actually work with the startup to sort of figure out how the startup is uh, dealing with all of these areas of public purpose. Maybe some of those areas are not relevant to them, right? Like if you're building, if you're building a hardware company that has nothing and could never have anything to do with democracy, then you don't need to assess them on democracy. But you know, you would probably assess them on climate, right, and supply chain. And so it's a matter of really asking the hard questions to the founders, which you typically do in diligence, and Mm -hmm. see how they respond. And then the VC is able to sort of see the response and sort of gauge their response to that. And and they would either flag it and say, "Mm, they really don't have good answers to that. That scares me a little bit. Is it enough for us not to invest in them? No, I think we should still invest in them. But it's something that we want to remember and remind ourselves about down the road. And then when you go, let's say, 18 months later, and that same startup, let's say it's a hardware startup, and they're ready to ship, they've, they've you know, figured out all of their supply chain issues, and they're, they're asking for, for more money, right? They're, ask, they're raising another round. They want their existing investors to double down. You have that same diligence. You have that same, the same questionnaire, but updated this time to sort of match the stage of the company. Last Mm -hmm. time we flagged that they didn't really have a good answer to supply chain. Over the last 18 months, have they thought about this more? Have they done a good job of doing all the considerations? And then you're able to sort of check in and sort of say, you know what? They still don't have a good answer to this. I'm not going to double down on them this time. You know, we really wanted them to focus on these supply chain things. We actually think this is going to be a massive risk to the company for PR reasons or cost reasons, whatever it is. I don't think we're going to double down. That's, of course, an extreme situation where it helps to make that decision, right? I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times 
you know, there is a bias that happens in due diligence. And I think there's oftentimes a sort of pre-investment bias is that it, you're sort of looking for a reason to say yes, right? And mm-hmm. post-investment, you're looking for a reason to say no, because you've already invested in that company. You already believe in that company. So I think what what really this will do beyond just due diligence for investments, but is also if you take a board seat or if you're observing the board, this tool can also help you while you're sitting in that room. And there's this sort of starts a governance conversation of sort of who is directing the company, but it allows you to sort of bring up these maybe tough subjects that either other investors haven't thought about, there's other competing priorities, but that you think are really important to the company and the success of the company and then you know, broader society. Right. So just to play it back for you, this tool and this process that you're really thinking through lets a, a VC fund take a look at a company and say, or take a look at their own values and say, I care about democracy at a level five, I care about labor at a level seven, and I care about, you know, environmental impact at a level three. Mm-hmm. And then as, you know, they input those things into this tool, the tool outputs a questionnaire or, you know, a, a series of, of diligence items that they can then go to these companies and say, okay, you have to meet these different requirements. And if you don't, it's still a conversation. It's still, it's not like a yes, no, invest, not invest, but it's basically a way for people to talk about uh, these different issues. There is a level of implicit trust that's needed here, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to be asking the company these sorts of things, it's implied that the company has to respond truthfully. And, you know, if the, co- if the venture capital fund gets to set its own levels of where it cares about, there is an item here of why wouldn't it just set all these numbers at, at one sure. or whatever the lowest is. So uh, I'm really curious to dig into more of these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, I would love to dive into these sorts of things as soon as we come back from a quick break. So let's pause for now and then we'll come back in just a second. follow along with Liz's work, you can find her on LinkedIn at in slash Elizabeth Sisson. That's Sisson spelled S-I-S-S-O-N. conversation with Liz Sisson talking about venture capital and public purpose. Uh, We left off just about uh, at a a point in the conversation where we were talking about trust and talking about how companies and venture capital firms themselves, why would they opt to be truthful about, you know, where they are, what their thoughts are, or why would they opt to take these sorts of tools and, and, you know, put these sorts of self-restrictions on themselves of what they invest in. And, and you've already talked a little bit about this, uh, about how this is actually good for business and that there's, you know, a lot of evidence to show that doing these sorts of things is not just good for, you know, feel good and, and good for society, but really it is it is a measure of risk. But it gets into this idea of 
you know, the underlying incentives for these startups and the underlying incentives for these venture capital firms. So could you maybe talk a little bit just at, at a high level about why it is that the environment that we have right now with startups and venture capital, what are the incentives that have put us into where we are right now? Yeah, I think VC and I guess you could say private equity as well, more so than other asset classes, sort of creates its own rule book. Of course, there are uh, regulatory restrictions. I don't want to say that it's the complete wild west, but there is this sort of uh, laissez-faire way about how VC operates. And it is it is based off of you know, people's own bias and people's own perceptions of startups, um, you know, and it kind of touches upon what I had said earlier about sort of the the VC special sauce and how VCs assess things is really their sort of their way of trying to find their the next big unicorn or the next big investment. And any sort of standardization sort of takes away from that special sauce. And so you do rely on your own lived experiences or your own expertise in investing to find that next big startup. What this tool is doing is is just really almost helping VCs who maybe haven't had the chance or hasn't they don't have maybe the lived experience or the tools or the know-how to really think about public purpose even though they want to. Right. Because there aren't there aren't that many incentives for them to care about public purpose. I mean, why would you why would you change doing what you're what you're doing if what you're doing is working? Right. And I get that question a lot. Like as an investor, I have all of these exits. My startups are doing great and I haven't cared at all about public purpose. Why am I going to change now? I don't think this tool is necessarily for those folks. What I really want to who I really want to work with are the folks that are saying, you know what, the business case has been made and times are changing and VC needs to care more. And I think as VC continues to diversify because VC has a massive issue with diversity and who is actually managing funds, but over time, more women, more people of color, younger folks, uh, more diverse backgrounds are really stepping into these roles and really being able to sort of manage the money. And I think it's, it's that diversification of venture capital that has created this somewhat awakening, if you will. And I think Black Lives Matter and I think COVID and just the crazy year that 2020 has been has also really opened people's eyes to why we should care about these things. Interesting. Um, so I think that the industry is educating itself. I think the industry is evolving. And this is me, this is me being hopeful and that it will continue to. Mm-hmm. And that more funds will be seeking these type of tools because they want to be intentional. They want to think about these things. They want to help their startups. Right. And honestly, and I think on the other side of it, I think founders are really smart and I think founders are really intentional. You know, we're talking about startup founders who have paused their lives to build these companies. And I think a lot of times they have this mission or this idea. And then when they bring in a, a new member of the board or they, they raise more money, that mission is maybe diluted or that they have other sort of competing priorities and they have to grow fast and they have to do all these things and they have to iterate. And I think a lot of times the public purpose or their mission or their intentions sort of gets pushed aside. And what I'm saying is let's, let's make sure as investors that we're not pushing those things aside, that we we're listening to the founders and we're maybe flagging and helping them in these areas not because every investment should be an impact investment, but that public purpose is is just good for business. For sure. Now, I imagine that you 
you know, in, in your line of work, you have felt the various different pressures on you to make these sorts of decisions on whether to invest or not to invest, or you've seen the inside, that special sauce, which how, how have you personally balanced these sorts of considerations with all the other pressures that you have as a funder? Um, it really comes down to who you're working with and team. So, you know, I'm on our team at Urban Us. I'm by no means the like the sort of business chops venture capitalist by any means. I'm I've always been the person in the room that's quick to say no to investments because I think that they could have negative externalities on society. Mm-hmm. And that's been me as the policy person in the room. And to to think about like what are the regulatory issues or what are the policy issues that could affect its business. But I think it's I'm also the one that's like well, you know, uh, what are the labor considerations or really what is the safety and security behind this and, and that. And I think a lot of times VCs don't have that person in the room to sort of just help direct that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think similarly, team is also really important on the startup side as well. And sort of like who is on their team to help direct these things and and um, how have they thought about these things? Do they have any experience in the past on these things? And so I think team is just really crucial for both the VC side and the startup side. Gotcha. What is it that, that venture capital firms actually go through to make their decisions right now? Is it a lot of just like gut feeling or are there studies that show that the questionnaires that people use right now actually do indicate, uh, you know, success or failure for businesses? Is this something that, you know, you're basically plugging into an existing framework or, or are you going to be creating a tool that'll change how people do their work? So I think that a lot of people have these um, ideas of VC that it is all gut. Um, And I think there was a sort of controversial New Yorker piece that came out that had a lot of VCs talking over the last couple of weeks because it sort of profiled VC as this sort of like crazy, um, you know, the crazy you are, the more money you'll get. And it sort of profiled a bunch of companies, particularly we work in relationship with SoftBank. I think that that's probably a wrong assumption. Um, I think, of course, there are some funds that probably operate in that way um, and have the sort of assets under management and the, the capital to just be crazy, maybe, or their crazy actions have just resulted in, in great returns. But I would say for the most part, especially for emerging managers and smaller funds, that there is this sort of combination of an art and a science that goes into investing. There's, of course, things that you want to look for. You want to look for these specific growth metrics, or you want to see what the expertise of the team that's building this company, that what they've done in the past, or you want to look at the overall market, like who are the competitors and what have they run into, what makes them different. There, there are those sort of like scientific business things that you look for. But there is the sort of the art side of it. Of course, there's the sort of, you know, let's say you've been an investor for 30 years, you've seen how these types of companies play out, or, you know, you you get this sort of like gut instinct from the team, maybe they haven't built anything, but this is their second company. And you know that the first company, they, they just knocked out of the park, they had just great instincts as a founder. So mm-hmm. I would say it's a combination. Um, And I think that's sort of what makes uh, this tool sort of special because it allows for the art and the science. Mm -hmm. The the art is the interpretation of these areas of public purpose. The science is the themes that 
that they should really be considering. And, you know, and I've listed a couple of them, but, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at democracy. I'm looking at the climate um, and, and sort of the environment. I'm looking at labor. I'm looking at privacy and safety and security um, and sort of other larger themes of public purpose that you should really care about um, that maybe people just really haven't had the time to think about how they should care about it. So, this tool also really strikes an interesting balance on this spectrum that we talk about a lot at the TAP project, which is self-regulation versus external regulation, right? So this tool, it doesn't seem to me like it would be something that you're advocating as a regulatory framework from government, but it seems like it's a self-regulatory aspect that venture capital firms would elect to use, but that's generally like a publicly available and publicly known uh, framework. Yeah, you know, I, I'm definitely on the self-regulatory side of this. My project is, I don't know if personally I'm on the self-regulatory side. I, I would mm. say, like I said, I'm, my instinct is to put on a policy hat no matter where I am. Right. So, and I do think, and my hope is, is that, um, on the government side, I do think, you know, government, the government is an investor in a lot of cases. And I think, um, I don't know what it looks like to be an investor in the government, but I, have a feeling that they could probably use a tool like this as well to think about public purpose. Um, But yes, this is, this is something that people would voluntarily sign up to use that there is no, again, there's really no incentive other than this is what they want to be doing. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, LPs, the limited partners, those are the folks that are investing in funds. They, you know, you have to do what your LPs want you to do as well. But I do think LPs are, getting really smart and they're realizing there is this business case and they do care more about public purpose. So I think when the three sort of major stakeholders, which are the LPs and then uh, the investors themselves and the startup founders come together and say, we all really care about public purpose. There is this tool that they can all use basically. Right. So why not go at a more regulatory angle, uh, seeing as you personally, you mentioned that you're a little bit more on the policy-based regulation side. Why not approach it from that perspective? You know, there's been a lot of conversations about around antitrust and uh, sort of the regulation around, obviously, monopolies and, and firms that are just gobbling up competitors and whatnot. And, you know, it is a larger conversation about all of these areas of innovation and what regulation does to innovation. I think that regulation could help uh, the issues of innovation. I think that it would only make things better. I think it could make things more, there's a a better environment for competition, um, that there is not this winners take all mentality. But I don't think everybody agrees with me. And I think the world of venture capital and I think Silicon Valley is very torn in this area. Um, What is a good business environment is totally up for interpretation, depending on your political leaning or how you think about economic policy. And so I just don't think at this point right now that uh, regulation from the government on the investing side would be smart. Um, I just think that it would just cause a lot of noise. Do I think it's important down the road? Do I think that there there is some sort of dangerous behavior that happens in venture capital. Do I think that there should be more considerations around public purpose and it maybe should be sort of something that is brought out through regulation? Yes, of course I do. But I just think the industry would would not be very happy about that. And I think that's why this is sort of important to say, 
can we do this without the government regulating this? Can we can we try to do this on our own to care about these things? Um, I think it won't it won't hit everybody. Not everybody will sort of jump on that wagon, but I do think that okay. it, will, it will at least help the industry in some way. It's an interesting tension because I think that we, I think that we have hit a point where we can see that a hyper focused view on innovation above all else has led us to many companies uh, where we have seen extremely detrimental impacts to uh, public purpose for the sake of uh, business growth. And I guess there's a debate to be had there of whether or not we've already reached the point where we need uh, higher level regulation. And, and when I think about regulation, I don't just think about like government bigwigs coming in to say what's right. I think about public representatives coming in to express the voice of the public and to to pull together the power of the people against these corporations which are too large to combat individually. How do we how do we know when we've reached that tipping point? I agree with you on a personal level that we've reached that tipping point. I think the conversations around big tech, what to do with big tech, what to do with Amazon, what to do with Facebook, I think and Google, I think we're there. And I definitely don't want to make it sound like, you know, we're still waiting for it to get worse before we can improve it. I just think that the industry of it, of of technology in Silicon Valley and VC are very torn in this area. It's a, it's a hot topic and there's a lot of um, competing opinions on it. You know, of course it's, it's tough because for instance, a lot of the big tech companies sort of uh, acquire a lot of startups and that's how you get an exit. And that's how VCs make their money. It's an exit. So there's these competing incentives to say that, you know, we shouldn't allow these folks to be gobbling up other firms and, and, it's a really difficult conversation to have. I I absolutely think something needs to be done. I think it'll only really help the world of innovation and startups and entrepreneurship grow if we if we do a better job of this. But I mm-hmm. think it's just a really, really difficult conversation. It's just something that a lot of people have very strong opinions on. And there definitely isn't one collective uh, belief in Silicon Valley yeah. or VC. Is there anyone that you can point to, any venture capital firm, um, or, or group of startups or, or incubator, or what have you, that you feel like is doing this right and is a model to follow? Doing what right, would you say? Taking into account public purpose as part of their investment uh, strategy. And we are you know, taking this as part of our core business values and, and operating on these principles and it's showing results. You know, that's a hard question because I've only worked in one VC fund, so I can only really speak on Urban Us. I know that there's some funds that are doing impact investing really well. There's frameworks that people are following that are, are that seem to be working really well for different folks. But I think it's also what when I'm focusing on public purpose, talking about the sort of unintended consequences or the externalities, I don't think many people are really thinking about that. That's sort of the opportunity I see here with my project is like, I don't really think that many frameworks or funds are thinking about these things that much. I also think that like with anything, you have to assess how effective it is. And I think because a startup, you know, will take seven, eight years to really grow and be big and, and, and for that exit time. But so it's sort of hard to measure really what is effective until you get to that point. So I'm not going to mention any specific names just because I, I don't know. Um, it's hard to say because I haven't been there, but I, I am hopeful that both impact funds and generalist funds will continue to be better about thinking about public purpose and really putting it as core of their diligence and post-investment assessment. 
Liz, this has been an incredibly, incredibly informative conversation. Any final thoughts or anything that you want to leave the audience with? Mostly just, I would love to talk to folks. Uh, I would love to talk to founders who have taken venture money. I would love to talk to investors who are thinking about these things or are not thinking about these things, but they but they want to be for ESG and impact investors, either in VC or outside of VC. I just really want to talk to folks who are interested in this sort of investing in public purpose space. Perfect. Well, Liz, thank you so much for talking today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mark. at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center as part of the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Music is by Zach Pfeiffer, artwork by Zeke Wang. I'm your host, Mark Lerner. Join us next time as we talk to the other fellows about the problems they're tackling. Thanks for listening.